Well, good morning, LLC. Uh, for those of you that are joining us in person, but also for those that are joining us online, so good to be together on this Sunday morning. Uh, it's a little bit chilly in here. We installed a new furnace earlier this year, and I really hope it works. Uh, we, we haven't uh, exactly turned it on all year, so we're waiting for it to still work. Uh, so bear with us. Uh, it's a little bit uh, cold in here. Uh, but I'm glad that we can be together today uh, just to worship and to uh, honor our God together as his church and as his family. Uh, we just pray together as we uh, start uh, reading, uh, diving into his word this morning. God, I just thank you, Lord, for, for your presence. Uh, Lord, I thank you for your love. And I thank you, God, that you are good and that you're merciful and that you're just and, and that you're sovereign. And all, uh, all things in creation, uh, all things over our lives are um, overseen by you and you know all things and you know us uh, this morning. So may we meet with you uh, as we encounter you, as we dive into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to start off by asking you this question this morning. Uh, have you ever thought about uh, why you're here? Uh, here, maybe it's in the sanctuary or you're joining us online. Uh, here in this life, in this world. Uh, I'm not sure if you ever thought about uh, that question. Uh, whether you came to church today uh, or you're tuning in online again, did you do it uh, because you wanted to? Was it an intentional step that you took? Uh, and, it, and if you wanted to do it, uh, why did you do it? You know, why did you want to come? Uh, why did you want to be here? Why are you tuning in? And, and, and why do you do what you want to do uh, in life? Uh, that's a very big question that I'm asking. Uh, I'm going to dive into that. I'm going to discuss parts uh, of that. And I was thinking about this, uh, this question and reflecting upon uh, the sermon this last couple of weeks. And yesterday I attended uh, Pastor Don, uh, Don Scott. He was a pastor here in the 2000s. I pastored English ministry. I attended his memorial uh, yesterday. He, he passed away earlier this year in April from complications in Parkinson's. Uh, and I got to see his wife, Bev, for those that remember, and just to remember uh, the man that uh, Pastor Don uh, was. And, um, and I was reading through his, his uh, bio and just uh, the things that they said about him. And as you know, if you know Pastor Don, he's one of the most gentle men uh, gentleman, he was a gentleman, but he was a gentleman, uh, and very kind, and very patient, and very loving, and very humble. And I would have never known in all the conversations that I had with him, I knew he had an athletic background, but I didn't know to the point of what extent, like to a point where he went down to the University of Oregon, he's a two-time NCAA champion in track and field, he was selected for the Olympics uh, in the running, the, the run to 800 meters, uh, but because of funding that year, even though they were allowed to send three people to the Olympics because of the Canadian funding that year. They only sent two. Uh, and he, his time was just as equal to the next person that was selected next to him. And that person actually won the silver medal that year in 1964 in Tokyo. But as you talk to Pastor Don, he talk about his life, he would always be more concerned about you and what God is doing in your life than what's happening in his. But I heard the story last night about his wife, Bev, uh, sharing about uh, how he was a he was such a kind man and how God provided for him. And he was a sovereign over his life. How he wasn't exactly a planned child. Uh, and they, they, his parents actually didn't want any kids. But here came Pastor Don, uh, uh, born in 1944. Uh, and he came into the world in, in a very rough time during the war and during the depression and all that kind of stuff that was going on. And they moved into, they, he's born in Vancouver, but he moved in South Van, actually just five minutes away from here. And they moved in the neighborhood, and the first uh, weekend that they're there, someone from the local church that was a few blocks away asked, hey, we, welcome to your neighborhood. Uh, and this is, 
Uh, he was like, can I come? And I know you have a boy. He's six years old. Can we take him to Sunday school? So now that was back in the day in the context where that was okay. Uh, we go knocking the door and asking for people's children. Uh, but so they asked him, like, oh yeah, for sure. Go take Don, uh, take him to, the, to Sunday school and whatnot. And this man later ended up be- becoming actually one of the founders of Regent College uh, that took him under his wing and mentored and discipled him. And before he even ran, what happened was they had a bus ministry that picked him up to go to Sunday school, but he wouldn't take the bus back. He would actually run back every single Sunday back to his home and start timing himself and saying, can I get faster? Can I get faster? And that was the beginning of his heart and his love for running. Uh, After running, he became a teacher, a high school teacher for over 30 years. I mentored and discipled many uh, students over his life and a very passionate man. But there's times when I've spoken with him when he said to me, God, uh, Doug, God has been so good and so sovereign at points of my life where I had to make these huge decisions, but God was good in overseeing and looking after me. And I'm thinking about that and this, this guy, uh, this, th- this wonderful man of God, how God has been sovereign and good in his life. And, and there's points where he could have turned away, but he didn't. And I'm thinking about us here this morning in this context of this passage. Like, wh- how are we to understand God's sovereignty? and his goodness, and his, his a- action in our life? How are we supposed to understand God's sovereignty and our human responsibility? That's the big question that, that we're asking this morning. Uh, how we answer this question affects many parts of our lives. Two, uh, such questions like when we sing, or when we say, I have decided to follow Jesus, can you actually say you decided to follow Jesus? Did you really decide to follow Jesus? These are the big questions that we ask. If, if God knows who's going to be saved, or if he chooses who's going to be saved, what's the point of ministry? What's the point of evangelism? What's the point of sharing with the people around us? We all have friends and family members who either don't believe or have left the faith, and we wrestle with that. How is that fair? How does that make sense? Why didn't God choose them, or did he choose them? See, that's where the doctrine of election comes in big term that we throw around in the theological world, which tries to explain the connections between God's sovereignty and his rule and human responsibility. And there's two schools of thought. And if you've been part of the Christian world, uh, you would have heard these two terms uh, before. Uh, and the, the, the two sides of thought of this is Calvin, Calvinism and Arminianism. Uh, not from Armenia, which I often thought when I was a teen and I heard about this, like, oh, this is a thought that came from Armenia, right? Armenianism. No, it's Arminianism. Uh, it's from uh, Calvin, John Calvin, uh, the, um, uh, the French uh, theologian, and also from the Dutch theologian, Jacobus Arminius. Uh, that's the two thoughts uh, that come um, in this discussion. There's been classes on this. I'm not going to do it justice in the, in the minutes that I have to, to explain this. But the way for us to understand God's sovereignty and human responsibility and how they intersect and how we understand this life is, in, Cal, uh, in Calvinism anyways, it's, uh, it's through the acronym TULIP. You might have heard that before. TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. A lot of information, <laughs> a lot of thought. But here's the, the main idea here, that as, as people, as humanity, that we're totally depraved, that without God, we, we can't save ourselves. We can't even come into the understanding of God's grace without God revealing himself to us at all. Whereas on the other side, uh, Arminianism, partial depravity, is like, yeah, man is bad. Humanity is terrible, and we're sinful. We need God to save us, yet we have a choice. Uh, yet there, there's a decision that needs to be made. I, I think it leans a little bit too far 
uh, into the free will side of things, where we have too much choice, and I'll explain that a little bit later. Uh, whereas Calvinism is saying that we're totally depraved, we can't do anything on our own. Unconditional election, that there's nothing about you, or your personality, or your gifting, of, uh, that attributes to why you are saved. It's unconditional. It's God has chosen because he has chosen, under his sovereignty, under what he has uh, done and what he has said. Whereas conditional election is the argument that there is, uh, um, even though you can't earn God's grace, that there are certain requirements to be saved. Uh, that's the argument on that side, uh, in short. Uh, limited atonement and unlimited atonement. This is the biggest um, uh, uh, argument within uh, the two schools of thought, is that limited atonement is that God, uh, Jesus, only died for those that were elected, those that are saved. So you believe in Jesus, Jesus only died for those that believe in him. The rest of the world, no. Whereas Arminianism is unlimited. God died for all. It's up to the person to receive it or not. But God has died for all. Irresistible grace, God's grace, once he woos you, once he's in your life, once he displays his grace, grace to you, is irresistible. You can't run away. On the other side, it is resistible. That God can show all the grace he wants in the world, but it's still up to you that you can reject him. Perseverance of the saints, that once you are belong to God's family, uh, there's also another term, is preservation of the saints, that God will preserve you, that he will hold on to you, that, that you can't uh, leave from his fold, that he would uh, keep you in his flock. Where it's conditional salvation, that you can lose your salvation, uh, that you can fall away. Uh, again, it's up to that freedom and that free will. Okay. <laughs> Two schools of thought. And the Bible, I want to say this straight out, that the Bible gives attention between the two. Right? If you sit on the Calvinist side or the Arminianism side, that we're not meant to fight against each other, but we're meant to understand not just the schools of thought, but we have to understand what the Bible says. Wrestle with the text itself. As John Piper puts it, we need to make room for the mysteries of God. That there's certain things that we'll never fully understand because God is God and we are not. And we need to wrestle with it, though. We need to understand and try our best, which is where Romans 9 comes in. And someone has asked me this week, as I was talking to them, to them like, what you're preaching on this week, it's like, hey, where do you stand? And maybe I do take on the stance uh, of my systematic theolo theology professor at Acts Seminaries, uh, Archie Spencer, where he called himself a Carmini uh, Calminian. Uh, so I'm never, neither Calvinist or Arminian, uh, but I'm a Calminian. Uh, I'm maybe... As I look into this, I'm a 3.25 Calvinist, uh, point Calvinist. Like he was saying, and he was being cheeky, and we had to argue for both sides. But I believe here in Romans 9, there's four important questions that the text helps to answer that maybe would give us an understanding of which side that we stand on or whether we're in the middle or not. And these four questions are this. Has God failed to keep his promises? Number two, is it unfair in the way God gives mercy? Number three, how can we be held accountable if God is the one who decides? Number four, can God still be good if he alone saves some? So can we still say God is good even though uh, he doesn't seem like everyone is not saved in our way of understanding the world? Again, how we answer these questions reveals what we believe about our salvation, what we believe about our calling, what we believe about how God is calling you to live. And I had to come face to face with some big these big questions this week and had to be honest with myself in why am I so adamant about free will? 
like, why am I so adamant about needing to choose or, or, or needing to have this, this freedom? And as I'm searching my own heart, searching my own understanding, it comes to this, that within me, there's a deep yearning for, for control. That there's a deep yearning for control, and, and, and this kind of thinking, this yearning sneaks into so many other parts of, of my life, of my understanding of God. Yes, salvation is by grace through faith, but I, I have this understanding, and it's true that we do need to choose, but it's almost if the choosing is more important than the grace that we receive. That the choosing action, that our salvation actually doesn't hinge on God's grace and on his sovereignty and on his goodness, but our salvation actually hinges on our choosing. And, it, it is, and, and, and here's the thing. It, it's true that we need to choose. And this is where the wrestling comes in. We read in Romans 10, right, that if we uh, c- confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. So in some ways, we have this thinking that, okay, we need to do that in order to be saved. But you, you, you see the issue there. You see the issue that whenever it comes to about us, it's a decision about us and what we need to do, we're, we're, we're getting the picture wrong. We, we start, stop understanding God's sovereignty. And, and what is my hope this morning is that you would find hope in this truth that it doesn't depend on you. That your life, that the, uh, the, 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 how God is overseeing you and taking care of you, your worth, and how God sees you, it doesn't depend on you and your strength and, and what you can do because God is sovereign, God is good, God is gracious, God is, is merciful. And I have my concerns about our church in the West and our church here, Lord's love, that what plagues most of the church in the West is a dependence on ourselves. That we believe in grace, we believe that we're justified by, by, by God, but we, we still, this thinking that we snuck into our hearts and our way of living that it, that what we do in our, uh, is, is earned, that we need to work for this salvation. We depend on our own strength and our own abilities. And this plays out in how we parent, how we go to work, our school, and how we play, and how we understand the world, all the way to our understanding of what it means to be saved. And as we get into the text, you're like, good. <laughs> as you get into the text, why does... Paul, we need to understand this. Why does Paul put the topic of God's sovereignty and human responsibility right after the assurance of Romans 8? Right after Romans 8, last week, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Why does he put in here in Romans 9 our understanding of God's sovereignty and understanding of our responsibility? Why does he bring up choice? Why does he bring up Jacob and Esau and and Pharaoh? What is God saying to us? And there's a problem that Paul is wrestling with here in Romans 9, is, and it's this, that we see in Scripture that God chooses the Jewish nation. But the problem is this, yet there are some within the Jewish nation that reject him. So does that mean God has failed? Does that mean God is wrong? Does that mean God is unjust? Does that mean God doesn't know what he is doing. And maybe some of you can resonate with that, that you thought you understood God's promises, but you're living in a time when it seems like it's the opposite. So Paul starts off in, in, in verses 1 to 5, uh, not with an argument, not making a mental exercise, not an academic, uh, um, not a, a, a academic argument, but he makes it personal. He makes it personal, and that is about his people 
that it's not about arguing about words or doctrine, but he's saying that, hey, my people are falling away, that my people are losing their lives. He acknowledges that the Israelites would have, should have believed in, in this God, and they have these spiritual blessings and these privileges they have, but some of them still didn't believe, and he's asking this question, why is that? And this is where we get into these questions. Again, firstly, has God failed to keep his promises? And he answers this in verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed. So in our understanding of the Jewish nation, how some of them have fallen away, does that mean God has lied? Does that mean that God has failed in keeping his promises? And as I ask this question, has God failed, I find my heart really slanting in another direction. And me saying this is not my fault that God failed because it's God's fault. That's another way of understanding that question. When I say, has God really failed, is me really blaming God? It's really his fault for what's going on in my life, what's going on in the world, that God has lost control. But Paul says here, it's not as though God's word has failed. Did God fail in the garden of Eden when Adam and Eve took up the forbidden fruit all the way back? Did Jesus fail on his mission? When his, was his death not enough? Did God fail when that tragedy happened in your life? Is God failing now with everything that's going on? Is God failing? And when the situations we see don't seem to align with what we know of God, there's a temptation and a yearning and a pulling that, to believe that God, God has, has failed. But the answer here in Scripture is that God has not failed. That God is sovereign. God is good. That God has not failed. Why? Because God never fails, for one thing. God is perfect in all his ways. God is constant and God is good. As it says in Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful one, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. God doesn't fail. God is perfect and God is just. So if Israel was chosen then, how can we reconcile that some didn't believe. And maybe that's why I'm a half point, I'm a half pointer on the irresistible grace part of things. That's not that God has failed, it's people. That God's grace is good, that God's grace woos us, but still he leaves a decision in our hands that we can resist him. And we do, we see it in our rebellion. We see it in the garden, we see it right now. Biblically, people have been won over by God's grace, but biblically, people have also rejected God's grace. That's how we see it in, in, in Scripture. And even if, if God, God knew Adam and Eve still chose that fruit, Israel still chose to rebel and worship that golden calf. Israel still rejected the king of kings and wanted to follow their own kings. Like, it, it's people who have failed, not God. And Paul reminds us of that. It continues on in the passage, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring, uh, it, it is, uh, sorry, uh, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of, of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Paul's arguing that some had a heart for God and others didn't. That's what it comes down to. There wasn't just a physical descent that made them belong, that makes you accepted, but it was this, that you're children of promise, that it was their heart of understanding of who this God is that brought them into this kingdom. 
And for those that never had this relationship with God, never really had a heart for God, never had this heart and understanding of who this God is. And the example of Jacob and Esau are used here uh, as, we, as we read through in that passage. And we read here, it's like, well, it sure seems like God chose Esau and, and, and Jacob before they were even born, right? That's what the text says. So how is that fair? How does that make any sense of all? Is it our fault that we don't have a heart for God? Like, it sure seems like it's God's fault there. It's God being unjust. And Paul reads our mind there. And that's where question two comes in. Is it unfair in the way that God gives mercy? Why he chose Jacob, or why he chose Esau, or why did he choose Jacob, and why did he choose Esau? And I see myself wrestling with this again, that I want this control. I think life depends upon me. So I, in other way, me understanding this question of whether it's unfair or not, and whether God is being unfair or not, is this, that I want to be the one that judges. I want to be the one that declares whether something is fair or not. I want to determine that, not God. And this is where we come into this wrestling. And Paul says, it, it continues on in verse 14, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So did God do something wrong to show mercy only to Jacob? And I'm glad Duncan, our worship leader, was mentioning about mercy because that's our really core to our understanding of God's justice, is the understanding of, of mercy. Mercy is not getting something you do deserve. Whereas justice, on the other hand, is getting something you do deserve. So mercy, again, I'll say that again, that mercy is not getting something you deserve. So really, it is a gift. It is something out of God's grace. And, we may, and what makes sense here in our way of rebelling against God and our way of rejection against God, what actually does make sense, what actually is fair, is that if God would wipe out all of humanity and apply his justice to everyone that has sinned, that's fair. That is justice right there. What doesn't make sense is when God gives mercy at all because God doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't owe us any mercy because we don't deserve any mercy. God, God doesn't owe us any mercy. So we can't say it's fair or unfair to, for us to receive it because we never, we, never, we, we never deserve to receive it anyways. So it's actually perfectly fair we're following along for God to give mercy to whoever he wants to give mercy because no one actually deserves mercy. So God is perfectly fair in who he is. And, and, and I love this passage here that he quotes uh, uh, with Moses. It's actually from Exodus 33 where, where Moses says, uh, wants to get a glimpse of God's glory. Uh, and God says, peek behind the rock because if you see me, you would just die because I'm too glorious for you. So this is the part where, uh, where, where, where Moses, Moses says, I want to see your glory. So show, show me glory. I want to see your face. And, and, and God explains it in this way. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I have compassion whom I have compassion. In other words, Moses didn't deserve to see God. Moses didn't do anything to earn God's love or earn God's trust. It was simply because of God's choosing, God's sovereignty, God's goodness, that he chose to reveal himself to Moses. That's why he, Paul says in verse 16, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. It's solely on God's mercy and who he is. It's nothing to do with you, nothing to do with your gifting and how good you are and your, how nice of a person you are. It purely has to do with God and what he says about you and his sovereignty. It wasn't dependent on Moses' ability or personality or anything about him. It's simply because of God. And we need to understand that. It doesn't depend on you. 
but it's simply on God, and it's all God. So why does God choose some and not others, it seems? And Paul goes on into explaining this. Even though it doesn't have anything to do with us, it doesn't mean God doesn't have his reasons. Right? We kind of think like, well, even though it doesn't depend on us, well, God can kind of randomly choose us. I'm just going to draw a name out of a hat. Uh, no, God has his reasons. God has his purpose. This isn't random and arbitrary. And in some ways, that's how I wrestle with the whole uh, un- unconditional election part, that yes, I, I'm almost 99% on the Calvinist side on that. Yet there's a huge part of scripture that I can't ignore, that people are chosen, not randomly, but it is in him. That there is a condition that not everyone is saved, that there is a, a condition that has to be in him. One of the passages, Ephesians 1, 4, for he chose us, what? In him. That it's simply in God, in, in Jesus, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, that you need Jesus. That there's a condition for this salvation. It isn't just given. So we, understand, we have to ask this question, though. How, how is it fair then? Why would he choose some and not others. Maybe it's because God knows our hearts and God knows the bigger picture, knows more than what we know. So question number three, how can we be held accountable if God is the one who decides, right? It sure seems like God already decided Jacob's fate. God decided Esau's fate. So how is it fair? How can we be held accountable for something that has been chosen outside of our control? And Paul asked this in Romans 9.19. I love this. He's following our train of thought. He's like knowing what we're going to think before we, knowing what we're going to ask before we ask it. He says this, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? So we understand that no, it's not unfair because God sees everything in the picture. God gives mercy according to who he wants to give mercy because none of us deserve it anyway, so that's fair. But it's also not unfair because God sees everything. He understands the whole picture. He understands what is going on. God has his perfect and just reasons for choosing who he chooses. But again, just because he chooses, it doesn't mean the other person, the person he's chosen, doesn't have to make a choice either, right? There's a decision that needs to be made. And this is where Pharaoh comes in. And I love this example that he, he uses there. He brings up in verse 17, for scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Our way of understanding this is crucial. Our way of understanding what happened with Pharaoh Pharaoh is, is, is crucial. Pharaoh's rejection was consistent with Pharaoh's own heart. That's really... Under- we need to understand that Pharaoh's rejection was consistent with Pharaoh's own choices and his own heart. See, God sees eternity past and God sees eternity future. God's choices are consistent with our choices as well, that he doesn't bring something out of uh, randomly in our lives, but it's consistent with what he knows about us. He knows you more than you know yourself. He knows you better than you know your own heart. Because we need to ask this, when did Pharaoh exactly reject God and when did God exactly harden Pharaoh's heart? You ever thought about that? If my reading is correct, if I remember correctly, it was after five plagues that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It, wasn't, it was only after God sent Moses and told them to repent. It was only God sent Moses and told the whole people to come back to God after five plagues and reminding that 
God was saying, you know what, I'm going to give you what's consistent to your heart. Doesn't that remind us of Romans 1, what we talked about, of how gave us over to the desires of our flesh. That God gave, or giving us what is consistent with what's in our heart. And that's what happened with Pharaoh. That God didn't just say, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart just because I want to harden Pharaoh's heart. It's because that's what's consistent with what Pharaoh has chosen and what was going on in him already. So see, God made himself known to Pharaoh first, but God, Pharaoh was the one that resisted. And here's something else. Do you think God enjoyed hardening Pharaoh's heart? I don't think so. If we understand scripture, we see God, we understand his, who he is and his love and his mercy for people. I really don't think so. To believe God delights in sending people to hell or that there are some some who God didn't make himself known, known uh, on purpose, that God resisted uh, making himself known to people, that's unbiblical. God has revealed himself. We read that already in Romans. He revealed himself to all creation, right? He's made himself known. And from scripture, we understand that it sure seems like God is willing to mend this relationship, but man is not. The man has rejected God. And this is the story from all uh, from the beginning of history, from the beginning of the story in Genesis all the way to now, that God was willing to be with the relationship with humanity, but it was humanity who rejected him. It was humanity who pushed them away. So can we be held accountable? Yes, because it's still the choices that we make. Leaves comes now to our last question, question number four. Can God still be good if he only saves some? This is a big one. This is one that many people wrestle with. How can you say God is good when there's still people perishing in the world? And I think we dove into that a little bit in, in that our understanding is people's choices, is the decisions that they've made. But the deeper question here is this, is God still good if he only saves some? And I've come to this understanding in this passage here in that it rubs us all the wrong way for those of us that think that life that we are in control of our own lives, that life is dependent on us, that this will rub us the wrong way when, we, when I say, when Scripture says, all of this, what if, and I think this is true, it's all for God's glory. That's all for God's purposes and his own reasoning. In verse 20, the Apostle Paul says this, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Our understanding that God has his perfect purpose. God has his glory. Uh, God has his ways that is all for his own glory. And he allows us to partake in it. And that it shouldn't be a rejection and, and a scoffing of God. It should be a, a worship of God, of his glory, of who he is. That he allows us to partake in his work, that he doesn't need us to evangelize and to be part of ministry, but he chooses to use us to be part of his work, that this is under his sovereignty and his goodness and his goodwill, that he allows us to be part of his, uh, to encounter him and to experience his gl glory, just like Moses. It's nothing that we have deserved, but he reveals himself just because he is good. Verse 22, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known 
to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance, prepared in advance for glory. Now, what if I told you everything about you and your life and creation, all of it, it's about God's glory. It's about revealing who he is, the goodness and the sovereignty of God, that that is the purpose of our lives, that how can we align ourselves to that? How would that change your understanding of your special and unique purposes, that God has chosen you, God is using you to reveal his glory to people? And I have had this conversation before. People will say, well, that sounds like God is very stuck up about himself. <laughs> right? It's just about God. It's about his own glory. Jesus cares about himself. I'm like, well, you kind of left out Jesus on the cross part uh, where he died for you, but let's talk about that for a moment. That I, I, I read this uh, illustration from J.D. Greer. Uh, he's a theologian and pastor in the States. Uh, and he uses this illustration of understanding how it's about God's glory. It's actually a good thing that he makes everything about himself. Uh, it's a good thing if we look into our solar system that the sun is at the center of our, of our, of our solar system. Uh, the sun is at the center and that the earth is not. Uh, once upon a time, we believed the earth was at the center, but, you know, we've learned. <laughs> uh, the sun is at the center. is a good thing. Uh, because if, it was at the, if earth was at the center, our gravitational force isn't enough to keep the planets going. We can't generate our own light. We can't generate our own heat. So if earth was at the center, everything in our solar system, we would just perish and die. The sun is 30,000 times bigger and provides heat and light. And the sun, when it's at the center, gives birth to life. Now, if the sun was a person, the most loving thing for the sun to do is to remain at the center. Do you see that? The most loving thing for God to do is actually to make everything about him and his glory, to remain at the center because life depends on him. If he really didn't care, he would make you the center. He would leave you to yourself. And he wouldn't have sent Jesus to come and save you, to make him, to die for, for you, and to make himself known, to say that you need me, I, you need me in your life, you need me to save you, you need me to, to be in your life, to, 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 to show you what is good, to show you the good way, to give you this new life. If Jesus, if God didn't really care. He wouldn't have sent Jesus. He wouldn't have revealed his glory to you and to me. The most loving thing that God can do is to make all a life about his glory and all about him. So where do we go from here? I want to end with a few application points, a few thoughts for us. If this isn't, there's a lot <laughs> that's going on here. But I think thankfulness is the right response to God's choice. That thankfulness is the right response to God's sovereignty over us. That our response shouldn't be a rejection of God, but should be a thanks, thank, thanksgiving. It should be appreciation every single day. That, that you can understand God at all, that you see God at all, that is a gift from God. That there should be a thankfulness that comes from that. And thankfulness is the right response as we live forward. Secondly, I hope this frees you again, that life is not dependent on your own strength. That some of you are, are killing yourselves because of this, that you think life is dependent on you, ministry is dependent on you. Your life, everything, your work, your schooling, everything is dependent on what you can do. Yes, we are to choose. Yes, we are to put in uh, effort and, and action, but life does not depend on you, that 
you are not at the center. God is at the center, that he is the one keeping you alive. And it's best for us to understand that, that God is the faithful one, that he keeps you in his promises. Three, some of you feel like life is out of control right now, and I don't blame you. (laughs) 2020 has been a terrible year, and some of you are going through even more things than we, we, we hear of. You think God has lost control? You think your life is out of control? You think you're out of whack? You're that planet? You're that comet that's swirling out into deep space, and no one hears you, and no one understands you. No one knows the cries of your heart, but here we see that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God knows all things, and no matter how wild and how crazy life might get, God is in control. He knows you. He knows what's going on, and he is enough. And fourthly, there is a call to action that some of us do need to repent. That we've turned from our own ways and we've been avoiding our our understanding of our lives. That you need to understand that you are responsible for your actions still. Some of you need to repent. Something that you have done that no one knows about and you got to bring that to God first. Some of you need to forgive someone. Some of you need to seek forgiveness for something that you have done. There is a repentance action that you're responsible for your actions and maybe that step of reconciliation starts today in a way of understanding how God has reconciled us to him. Let's pray. Father, your word is so rich and I am so unworthy to present your word in this way. So Father, I pray that you will make yourself known in only the way that you can that you reveal yourself to us in only the way that you can. Father, I, I just thank you for your sovereignty, that you oversee all things. I thank you, God, for your mercy and your grace. Just for your patience on us, a broken and sinful person, that you still choose to love us, that you still choose to send Jesus to die for us, even though we don't deserve it. And Father, may we say yes to you again today. May we acknowledge our brokenness, but may we even more proclaim your goodness. That in our brokenness, through the cracks of our brokenness, may your light shine all the brighter. And may people all around us just see your glory. And may we get a glimpse of who you are today. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.